This morning's reading is from Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you had seen him go into heaven. Thanks, Nev. Not one of the longest readings we've had, uh, but an important one, a crucial one, uh, as we continue on in our series in uh, the book of Acts. Let me pray uh, and uh, so that we might ask God to help us as we reflect on this important part of not just the book of Acts, but on the whole of uh, the Bible and God's word to us. So let's, let's. Gracious Father, thank you so much for the book of Acts. Thank you for Luke who wrote it. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired him. Thank you for the eyewitness testimonies that he recorded of those who saw Jesus. We ask that you might move us by their accounts now and that you might grow our faith in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Have you uh, have you ever thought to yourself as you're standing in line for a coffee or on the phone to some government department or revisiting maybe an old story that a family member is telling you again uh, or holding a screaming kid or maybe even come off the back of something really good, you know, a, a really nice surf or something, and and thought to yourself, Surely there's more than this. Surely there's more than this. And where do you go in those moments? Do you uh, maybe hark back to the good old days, you know, those golden years, maybe that special relationship you had, the honeymoon maybe, you know, where the sex was fun and life is carefree. Uh, maybe to that great experience that you wish you had or you you could redo. Uh, a while ago I went to uh, to a punk band concert, because that's what I do, uh, and I lost my soles, the soles of my shoes, in the mosh pit. Uh, it was such a rush and it was so much fun. I know that might sound mad to you. But uh, every time my girls now uh, bring up uh, going to see Taylor Swift next week or uh, K-pop band Itzy in a month, uh, my first reaction is to think about moshing in the, at the Enmore to the punk band and badgering them to check out the YouTube clip because that's so much better. Uh, you know, we can yearn for the past, right, can we? That experience that we thought was fantastic. Uh, maybe that business deal that we struck, or when we had more money, or when life was more. But maybe that's not what's on uh, our mind all the time. Maybe it's not so much the past that we're yearning for, but the future that we're a little bit afraid of, maybe even despairing of. I mean, it's no secret. Uh, there's actually less interest amongst young people these days in romantic relationships, or buying a house, or pursuing a meaningful career, because, well, those things just seem like impossible dreams. You know, with all the broken relationships around, house prices through the roof, and a, a thousand better experience than qualified people going after that same job, why bother? It's less risky uh, having those things come to us and said vicariously, right, through a screen, you know, to curl up and binge on rom-coms or home improvement shows, to get a job just for the money so that we can buy the best screens to, vi- to keep living vicariously through them. If we're constantly yearning for the past or despairing of the future, 
it should make us wonder what the point of getting up in the morning is. What is the point? Why, why do you get up in the morning? Why did you get up this morning? Apart from maybe a screaming kid or you need to go to the loo. That was me. But why do you get up in the morning? Why? I suspect if we stopped for a a little bit and seriously reflected on that question, many of us might just stay in bed. I suspect if, uh, because whether it's yearning after something good that we've had or squinting into an impossible future, maybe sometimes it might just feel like we're stuck in a holding pattern, hoping against hope that there's something more, something better than this, but not really sure what it is. Which might be where disciples, Jesus' disciples were at way back then. You know, they've had Jesus in their lives for three years now. They've saw him, seen him do incredible things. He rose from the dead, for goodness sake. Uh, he appears to them and he's changed their lives irrevocably. And then suddenly he's gone, flying away from them. And they're left staring into the sky after him, perhaps wondering, okay, what now? Is he coming back? I mean, that'd be great. Uh, when he was with us and doing incredible things, that, that was great. Those were the days, the good old days. Well, maybe they're thinking about the future. Well, what now? I mean, he said something about us being witnesses to the whole world, whatever that means. That's impossible. So they might be thinking, what possible reason is there for us to get out of bed tomorrow morning? What's the point? Well, I reckon the angels who appeared to them at that time, they hit home. They hit a home run on this, I reckon. They tell the disciples that Jesus is coming back the same way that he left. And I reckon that's the point for us too. So that's what we're going to take a closer look at this morning together. Firstly, the way Jesus went into the sky. Uh, and then secondly, what it means that he's coming back the same way he went. And with that, I think we'll see the best reasons to get out of bed in the morning. And every morning. So, firstly, the way that Jesus went. It was physical. Uh, Jesus flying into the sky was totally and utterly physical. On a plain reading of these verses, that's what's meant, what we're meant to come away with. Jesus physically rose into the sky. Now, some struggle with this because, uh, let's face it, a man literally flying into the sky does seem kind of ridiculous. Uh, it's, it feels like some childish fantasy. You can't help picturing Jesus kind of wearing a cape with his sandals flapping in the breeze as he you know, soars into space, you know, maybe with a yoo-hoo. Uh, it's comical, right? Uh, to say it actually happened, well, people might think that you were joking. And if you insist that it's true, they might think of you as one of those religious people who don't really mind believing in myths, uh, or maybe even a little bit delusional, and then feel sorry for you, maybe even embarrassed for you. But they didn't, because while the idea of Jesus flying might sound like fantasy, Luke understood it as an eyewitness account. Not imagined, but observed. Uh, Over and over, Luke tells us uh, the apostles saw Jesus fly away. Now, it might not come up up on the screen, uh, but if you've got your Bibles in front of you, we we read before their very eyes, verse 9, 
he hid them. He was hid from their sight. Verse 9 again. They were looking intently. Verse 10. Why, the angels say, why are you standing here looking? Verse 11. You've seen him go. Verse 11 again, they say, five times Luke records the apostles saw it. I think he's trying to make a point. Now, whether you accept that's what they saw, you know, that's one thing. But it's another to say that they didn't claim that's what they saw. That they made it up like a myth. Because unlike ancient myths and poems, at the start of his first book, Luke tells us he's writing so that his readers, us, might be certain of what they've been told about. And there's no good reason to doubt his motives, given there's nothing in a worldly sense to gain from publishing this about Jesus at the time that he did. Christians were pretty much universally hated and persecuted at the time, but Luke obviously thought it was worth popping his head above the trenches with these books, and so he records the apostles' testimony. They saw Jesus flying. With their own eyes, they intently watched him go. That's a bit like a running catchphrase in a TV show, you know, like um, Joey's How You Doing, or uh, friend, from Friends, or, you know, I have a cunning plan on, on Blackadder, uh, where each time it's said it gets funnier and more memorable. Well, only Luke here, he's not repeating they saw, they saw, they saw, just to be, to be funny, but he's certainly trying to be memorable. Oh, did I mention they saw Jesus fly? Oh, oh just in case you missed it, they saw him fly with their own eyes. Did I, did I mention that? Oh, you may have noticed that they were intently looking. They watched him go. Why labour the point? Maybe because he expected a bit of kickback from sceptics like you and me, from people who know that people, people just don't get up and fly away. There's this uh, French philosopher and theologian, a guy called, uh, he's a French guy, uh, obviously I mentioned, Dr. Guillaume Bignon, I don't know if I pronounce his name right or not. He'd probably punch me if he was here, but anyway. He was an atheist. I heard him on a podcast the other day talking about how he came to believe in Jesus. And he said this. He said, there's tons of things in, in life that I know. Not just that I believe, that I know. And yet I don't have absolute proof or certainty at all. One very important category of examples was things that I know on the basis of reliable testimony. I know my date of birth. I know who my parents are. I know where I was born. I even know some things about my older brother's birth, but clearly I wasn't there. I wasn't yet born yet. I don't have blind faith in them. I know them, and I'm quite reasonable in believing them. I realise that this is just one very respectable way of having knowledge. And this is the parallel that I quickly came to draw with what I had been reading in the New Testament, realising what I am reading here is accounts from people who claim to either be eyewitnesses or to take their accounts from people who had been involved with Jesus and were in a position to know those claims, and they're telling you, this is how it happened, we've seen it. And Luke employs this very respectable way of knowing something to be true. He consults eyewitnesses. And he states what they said they saw, so that we might be sure about what we've heard of Jesus, that he physically rose into the sky. And that has implications. If nothing else, it means he's powerful. And more powerful than just a man who can fly, he's the most powerful man. 
Why do I say that? Well, oddly enough, I think it's got everything to do with that little detail of a cloud there in verse 9, where Luke uh, writes, He was taken up before their very eyes, and what? A cloud hid him from their sight. I like clouds. Yeah? Clouds are cool. Uh, but this cloud here is possibly the, the best and coolest cloud ever. I heard someone the other day uh, just wondering out loud what type of cloud it might have been. You know, maybe it was a stratus cloud or a cirrus cloud, you know, closer to space. Or maybe it was that, uh, and I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, but the Thelomnimumbus uh, cloud. Thank you. <laughs> Whatever cloud it was, that cloud, that a cloud is mentioned, is significant. Because of all the details that the disciples could have recalled about the moment that Jesus flew away, you know, like the way the dust from his sandals fell to the ground as he took off, or maybe as a flight of birds had to change course to get out of his way, (laughs) Uh, or how maybe his shadow got smaller the further he went up, or how he folded his arms or uh, waved, or, or how he went pretty quickly or took his time. Of all these details that there would have been, that Luke could have included, he only mentions a cloud. Only the cloud is mentioned. Why? Well, I reckon it's got to do with another significant cloud. Uh, In a vision that God gave the prophet Daniel centuries before, centuries before Jesus, this is the vision that God gave the prophet Daniel. In my vision at night I looked, And there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and he was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, frequently, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. You might read that in, even in the Gospel of Luke. And here in Acts, Luke deliberately details the cloud to link Jesus to Daniel's one like a son of man, who comes to the Ancient of Days, comes to God with clouds to be given all authority and glory and power. As such, we're to understand that this is who Jesus is now. His flying into the cloud confirms it. Jesus is the all-powerful and everlasting king of God's kingdom. But it's also interesting that back in Daniel's vision, the vision of this son of man, uh, it's set in the context of other visions of other kingdoms at the time, earthly kingdoms of Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Greece and Rome. But they're all depicted, these kingdoms, as beastly and grotesque and horrifying and inhuman. And in contrast... To God's kingdom, we've got this one like a son of man ruler. In contrast to those beastly rulers, we've got this this human ruler. And so with Jesus fulfilling this vision, we have not only a picture of Jesus' power, but we actually have a picture of his humanity. He is truly human. In the sense that his rule over people, like the kingdoms of the earth, it's not beastly. It's not destructive. It's not terrifying. It's just good and just and full of life. I think I've referred to uh, this before, but it's interesting, I reckon, for me. In the imaginary world of uh, Superman, his arch enemy is a guy called Lex Luthor. Lex hates Superman. 
that he hates Superman's fight for truth and justice because he reasons that Superman isn't human. He's an alien. He's from Krypton. He's a powerful alien that can't be trusted because he can turn on the human race at any time. He's not to be trusted, let alone worshipped. He's to be destroyed. And I reckon there's a bit of Lex Luthor in all of us. It's hard for us to trust an alien, a stranger from another place, particularly a powerful stranger, because strangers with power, what, what do they normally do? They abuse it. They abuse it for their own ends and seem less and less human as they do, and so less trustworthy. And yet we see here in Daniel's vision that people of every nation worship this one like a son of man coming on the clouds, this powerful man who is Jesus. And we know Jesus is worshipped, not because he's terrifying in his power, but because as a man, he brings about real truth and real justice, and he comes to God on humanity's behalf, having sacrificed his human life for them, in this we see his true humanity. And as such, he can be trusted with the power that he's given to rule. We don't need to second-guess his motives or fear his power. In fact, we're better off submitting to him than not. Because the simple fact is, we're all slaves to one power or another, to one master or another, whether it be a government, whether it be an ideal or a craving or money. But the only master that's not going to cruel us, that's not going to tear away at our humanity, that's actually going to dignify our humanity as we submit to it, is the only truly human ruler, and that's Jesus. And this is confirmed by his flying into the clouds as a man. Importantly, Jesus flying away was very physical, and it speaks of his power, his power to save those who trust him, who put their hope in him. He's worth getting up for in the morning. Which brings us to the second point. He's come back the same way he went. Which means he's coming back very physically and very powerfully. That's what the dudes in white tell the disciples. There in verse 11, men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. The men in white, they say Jesus will come back in the same way they've seen him go. He'll be seen in the air again. It'll be very physical. And this time everyone will see it. The Bible says elsewhere, on that day, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Jesus will be revealed, he'll be seen from heaven by all those waiting for him, those who've been dead and those who are alive. They'll all be caught up together with him in the clouds. We'll be with the Lord forever. Uh, Jesus is coming back the way he left, very physically. And so that means to be with him is to be with him physically. Uh, many years ago, before I was married, 
I was in a long-distance relationship. She was in Russia in some exchange program, and we chat over the phone all the time. I can remember one uh, phone bill coming in at over 500 bucks, uh, most of us of which was like long-distance calls. After about nine months of this, though, I was keen not to go broke. Uh, but also, I just wanted to see her in person so that we could chat face-to-face and enjoy each other's company, even when we weren't talking, which is something you can't do on the phone, right? That's just weird. There's something about being in the flesh that makes relationships better. And the simple reality is that that's the promise of Jesus coming back the way he went. We'll be with the Lord, not just in spirit, as we are now. He's with us. But we'll be with him in the flesh. You know how on that first Easter Sunday... Mary realizes it's Jesus outside the tomb. Probably read that in the Gospels. And what does Mary do? Embraces him. What does Jesus say? Don't do that. Don't hold on to me. I wonder why he says that. Maybe part of the reason Jesus says this is because being with Jesus like that, embracing him in the flesh, that's something that's reserved for glory. That to be with Jesus in the flesh, that's a gift Jesus kept from Mary back then so that he might give it to us all on the day he comes back. That we might put the phone down, so to speak, and turn to see him walking in the door to see his face and to run to him and hug him. That's the reason to get up in the morning. Jesus is physically coming back for us. But it's not only this, he's coming back powerfully, which is also a comfort for some, but a terror for others. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and be marveled at among all those who have believed. Everyone will see him. Believers and unbelievers, everyone will see him and have to deal with him. People will no longer have the chance to ponder over whether or not he exists, whether he's relevant or not. There'll be no more time for that. Instead, everyone will have to reckon with how they treated him before they saw him. Those who dismissed him as a myth or as irrelevant or as powerless, from that day, sadly, they'll go to suffer an eternity in hell. Please, if you're undecided about Jesus, if you just haven't got around to finding out more about him, can I urge you, please don't wait. Jesus is coming back. He's flying into the sky back then guarantees he's coming back. It's not a matter of if, it's just when. And let's face it, we're we're over 2,000 years closer to the day. Don't be found looking up to see Jesus powerfully coming back the way he left, having never given him the time of day. Give him the time of day. Now, throw your lot in with him. Trust him. He died for you. 
He powerfully rose from the dead for you. He powerfully rose into the sky for you. And he's powerfully coming back for you. Because it's here in Jesus' powerful return as the judge of all, judge of the living and the dead, that we can have any confidence that all that's wrong in this world, that's wrong in us, will be finally set right. No more selfishness, no more suffering, no more death, no more injustice, no more trouble, no more troublemakers. Can you imagine that? School with no bullies. Work with no worries. Family with no tension. Only joy, happiness, peace, security, love, on and on and never ending. All the time and everywhere with everyone. That's the promise of Jesus powerfully coming back the way he went. I've been watching this uh, TV series lately uh, called For All Mankind. It's a retelling of the space race in the 1960s where the Russians get to the moon first and how America has to respond over the, the ensuing years to try and get ahead with the next milestone in space, you know, like colonising the moon and then getting to the planet Mars and then the final seasons actually explore uh, a race to colonise Mars and imagines Mars being a place where humanity might start again uh, to make a, a human society free from political, racial and sexual boundaries and prejudices. Accordingly, one of those uh, the episodes in those final seasons is called New Eden. But predictably, the prejudices, frustrations, greed, misunderstandings, politics and violence, they all follow the once earthbound humans to Mars. And so we see that the human society on Mars is no less troubled than the one on Earth. The problem with humanity, as it turns out, it's not location. It's not where you are. It's lovelessness. It's not a lack of sacrifice, but what they sacrifice on the altar of progress. It's not the place they're in. It's the heart that we all have. But unlike this show, which imagines a future from a fake past and progress as sometimes saviour, sometimes slayer, Jesus powerfully coming back to set all injustice, set straight all injustice, to judge all who love cruelty and are selfish, to make all things right, this powerful coming back is predicated on the true past, the observed past, that he rose into the sky. Which means we can wake up any morning, any morning into this life and this world, a world that might be full of selfishness, full of injustice, full of sorrow, full of trouble and death, but know that all these things, they have a shelf life. Their time is fast running out. And one day, at just the right time, Jesus will come back the way he went physically and powerfully, to make all things right. Who doesn't like a uh, funny T-shirt? This is a classic one, right? Jesus is coming. Look busy.
you reckon the two angels that appeared with the disciples were wearing these T-shirts, though? No. They wouldn't. They wouldn't be wearing this, because that's not what they were saying. What did they say? They weren't saying, come on, all yourselves together, stop looking into the sky, you've got a job to do, get on with it. As if burying yourself in busyness is the answer to getting up in the morning. As if doing anything in our own strength is the answer. They knew that we need something, someone, to pull us out of bed each morning. And every morning. And that person, that someone, is and always will be Jesus. Who's physically and powerfully coming back the way he went. And so who doesn't want to pray? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's sing.